right. Uh, good morning. Uh, thank you all for joining us. Um, my name is Erica Greeter. I'm a senior editor at Texas Monthly, and I'm excited to welcome you on behalf of the Texas Tribune Festival to this morning's one-on-one -on -one conversation with Glenn Hagar, the new Texas controller. Um, just a few housekeeping notes. We'll be talking for about 35 minutes, and then we'll do about 15 minutes of audience Q&A. So if you have questions, uh, you'll have a chance to ask them at those back mics. Um, and if you're following along on social media as well, you can follow the hashtag TTF, so just hashtag TTF um, with any questions, comments, concerns, compliments for the controller, uh, and so on. And with that, we'll get started. Uh, Glenn, thanks for Good joining us. Good to be with you this morning. Uh, it's been a busy, uh, busy year for you so far. You were elected controller in 2014. Right. Um, you'd been in the ledge for 10 years before that, but um, you know, elected in November. You come in, you've got to do the biennial revenue estimate in January. So maybe we can start by just talking about how you transitioned to that office and what was going on at the time, what the state's economic outlook looked like. and Yeah, I, I, a lot of my speeches, I kind of mentioned that during the campaign, the one thing that I promised, especially to my wife, is that we'd go on a vacation. <laughs> and so without our three kids, the 10, the 7, and the 7. So by the third morning on our vacation, she kind of smiled at me and she looked at me. And if you remember, in October, oil prices started declining. This was our vacation was roughly the beginning of December. And we were trying to work on the revenue estimate. and hopefully putting some finishing touches on it. So I'd get up early, I would email back and forth with my 2B revenue estimator, reading a lot of articles, and by the third morning she looked at me and she said, so what's oil prices doing today? <laughs> I mean, I was very focused because obviously that's a major portion of the state budget, but with that being said, you know, one of the things I've come more to appreciate since being in this position is that Texas is the 12th largest economy in the world. It's amazing how diverse this economy really is. And so all, as, as I gave the CRE earlier this year, undoubtedly impacted transfers over to the rainy day fund and uh, fund six, which is for transportation. And obviously uh, we ticked back growth in sales tax numbers. But with that being said, last here, just at the end of last this week, we had last month's job counts and we've gained 26,000 jobs again and really manufacturing for the first time since January this year, gained 2000 jobs, which is pretty remarkable. Yeah, I remember covering this at the time, too, and as you say, there, I think because of the oil prices, especially for a lot of Texans who are older or national observers who are older, right. they remember the 80s and, and when right. the 80s when the oil was happening. That's right. <laughs> and a lot of people were writing a lot of articles at the end of last year, and kind of gleeful, I think, really, yeah, is that <laughs> Texas is, the Texas miracle is going to end, Texas is going back to the 1980s. But, but one of the things that, that we've continued to talk about in my office is that really this economy is not the 1980s. Mm -hmm. And so the transition from, from the legislature to the controller is, is extremely different, which in part you're asking that question. You know, my role now, I'm not a policymaker. Now we're a provider of facts and information to the legislature and we try to make sure they have the best information that they need, mm -hmm. whether it ends up being from the revenue estimating side, whether it ends up being for taxes as, as I'm the collector of the state taxes, and then also the finance treasury. But then obviously we deal with procurement of state contracts. Obviously DIR does the technology side of it, but we do all, we set all the other contracts. And with that being said, Contracts was a major issue last session, so we were a, a major uh, provider of information to help guide that discussion last session. So it, it's very interesting in this role how many different parts we play in the legislative session really as a resource is what it amounts to. Um, I think we've got a pretty expert audience in the room, right? I see some experts around the room. Um, but yeah, since they're, they're, they're going to be critical of depending on I know, what they're going to have say. some tough yeah. questions for you, but uh, since we're also recording this in audio and tweeting it, um, I think maybe it would help just for 
to sort of clarify what the BRE is and what its role is? In yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was me earlier. I was dropping water left and right. So um, Thank you. <laughs> where's the table up here? Uh, but, you know, the fact is, is the, the BRE, the day before a legislative session, I'm required to give what is the state revenue is going to come into the state treasury. And a lot of times I ask in my speeches, is there anyone in this room that can accurately forecast with 100% certainty how much money will come into your state household and, and in your own personal household? And I don't want to know the number, but can you forecast how much money will come in your household in nine months and then in two years later? And everybody looks at me, are you nuts? I go, well, I get to do that times 27 million people. Yeah. And it, it's a very, as uh, Tom Cure always says, he goes, it's complex, yeah. very complicated. <laughs> But it's one that is extremely important mm -hmm. because it sets the parameters upon which the discussion for the budget is mm -hmm. for the legislative session. And it's one that as a legislator in the House for four years and in the Senate for just a month shy of eight years and being through several budgeting processes, I take it very seriously mm -hmm. because it, it's not light in any shape, form or fashion what that number is that we give to the legislature. And people ask me, what do you enjoy about this job? Really looking at that economic data, I mean, that's a fun part of this job. It's a really fun part because it, it is so complex and complicated. Mm -hmm. And as you say, it's the 12th largest economy in the world, and also we're one of only four states that has a biennial legislature, so you've right. got to do, you're forecasting the two-year cycle that begins after the ledge leaves. Correct. Um, so that's a pretty unusual task. Um, and so in this context, I mean, the BRE came out and said 113 mm -hmm, billion, 113 billion dollars for general, at revenue. least for general general revenue spending purposes. Mm -hmm. And so that, in this case, because there's a balanced budget amendment and a spending cap, mm -hmm. um, how did that? What did that imply for the budget? The legislature. Yeah, uh, in most sessions, the vast majority of sessions, the amount of money that the legislature has to spend is really dependent on that biennial revenue estimate. Mm -hmm. That almost ends up being the amount of pot of money that they have. But because the health of this economy has grown so much. Mm -hmm. in the last two, four, and six years. The fact is we had built up excess amounts of dollars in our treasury that were rolling over into this biennium, and so therefore really the parameters that they were set upon, which was really the spending cap, mm -hmm. how much money they could spend, it really wasn't the revenue estimate. Right, uh, so that's kind of unusual, and so did you? Very unusual. Do you remember, what was the, what was the reaction as you perceived it? Did people think, oh, this is great, we're in great times, or did they kind of see this is, we've had a couple of good years and we're now kind of hunkering down for a potentially rougher well, few years? Probably the biggest thing that I had in the last legislative session, and we were talking about this a little bit earlier, is that, you know, the revenue estimate gets set really before Christmas, because mm -hmm. you got to print, print, print the little booklets and get them distributed, and, and, and so the fact is, is you can make adjustments, obviously, before the day that you make the announcement, but you have the big parameters, and, and, and it's being worked on even back in October and November. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, Susan was great in the fact that she just allowed me and transition-wise, her team was working on it, and then my folks, as I was moving into the office, just now enable us to work on it. So it was really my revenue estimate. But with that being said, the biggest questions that, that we had was because oil prices were continuing to decline. And there was a, a lot of nervousness as in, is this re op revenue estimate too optimistic? Mm -hmm. I think that was, that was the biggest issue that I had to contend with. And towards the end of session, we could have revised it down for oil price, mm -hmm. but ultimately I decided not to because again, it wasn't gonna impact the spending side. Mm -hmm. It would probably have caused more confusion and it wasn't a big enough number to really make us any type of difference in the budget. And then also all numbers as in production coming in yeah. volume, 
didn't roll until this summer. And yeah. it's phenomenal the volume that still came in earlier this year, is my point. And people, I think, were surprised by that, too. I think the national media that was observing the that oil price thought um, that wouldn't be the case. Everybody um, was surprised by that production not rolling until summer. Most thought it would be up in early spring. So we keep talking about, you wrote an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal, which I tweeted a link to earlier, so if you guys want to read that, I would encourage you to do so. But you talked about, it's called the Saudis Gamble in Texas One. Um, can you sort of speak to how how oil as uh, oil and gas as a segment of the economy in Texas, how they affect the Yeah, it was, uh, it was kind of funny. Um, one of my statewide colleagues, I won't pour which one out, had to send me a text and said when I did the revenue, the CRE, mm. the certification revenue estimate earlier this year and lowered the oil price, and we've talked about this quite a bit, and said, okay, I'm gonna pin that up right next to this article. And, and I kind of laughed and I said, okay, that's, that's fine, but I'll still stand by this article. And uh, one person had written to me and said, well, Glenn, that's pretty bold to say the Saudis gambled in Texas one, we're not out of the woods yet. And I wrote them back and I said, well, actually, we're not even in the woods yet, mm -hmm. as in far as what we're going to see in this economy. But, but here's the real point of this, is that Saudi production, even at the end of December of last year, you know, number, prices dropped right before Christmas from $63 at the beginning of the week to roughly 59 something, almost 60 at the end of the week right before Christmas. And it was because the Saudi minister had said they, they were not gonna pull back regardless of the price. Well, the fact is, yes, they have low lift cost, but they subsidize their entire economy off this oil. Yeah. And so therefore right now, they're bleeding 12 billion a month. Yeah. And it's, it's very different in a state economy, state run system versus capitalism here in America. And, and my point is, is that, America capitalism, the day when prices go back up, money will flow back in. Okay. And so to assume that Texas and the United States will never ever produce again, that is an extremely grave miscalculation. Mm -hmm. And that's really the main point of this. Whether it's in a year or 10 years, American money will flow back into the oil patch again mm -hmm. and it will produce again. It's a player in the international market from here going forward. And in the meantime, as you said, we're we're hedged against that sector of the economy by other sectors of our economy. So manufacturing jobs you mentioned, we added those last month, Yes. partly perhaps because of Yeah, the I mean, it's, it's, ama it's amazing that if you look at Texas, we've had two months this year where we've lost jobs. That was back in March, and then that was actually back in August. And the August numbers were revised downward as you, as you reevaluate mm -hmm. as going forward. So Workforce Commission revised those downward. But then last month, we gained another. 20, 25, 6,000 jobs. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's very interesting that in manufacturing, we gained 2,000 jobs. So we're still down negative 29, mm -hmm. but the fact is we gained jobs, mm -hmm. which is the first time since January this year, which is really remarkable, yeah. even in this lower price. Um, and you're, the, the CRE projects continued job growth for the next, for the biennium, but what, what sectors are you worried about job losses in, or are you seeing job losses in? Uh, really, the, somebody had asked me a similar question the other day when I was given a, a discussion to a, a one of the communities as I've been doing the town hall tours and somebody had said, which sector are you really worried about? And it's really oil and gas. I mean, it's oil sector because those that are in the service industry, contracting industry, they've seen significant losses and that, that's the industry I'm mostly worried about. And then also with the higher value, the higher um, value of the dollar mm -hmm. that impacts our trades mm -hmm. in Texas is the number one exporter of products out of the 50 states in our nation. I mean, you have to add up California and you have to add up Washington and you still don't equal our 288 billion. And so obviously with the higher value of the dollar, 
that means that we have fewer exports. Mm -hmm. and, and that's something of, of concern. But far as downstream, I mean, it's amazing how many billions of dollars, and I asked my staff this morning when I was up early, they, I think they don't like me on the weekends because <laughs> I have too much time to think. And I had asked, could you, could you calculate up how much announced and unannounced projects that we have on the Gulf Coast far as downstream refinery and manufacturing? I mean, it's literally tens of billions of dollars. Yeah. And so you, you're still seeing investment in Texas but I'd say really oil and gas is, is the one I'm mostly concerned about because we haven't seen all the, the impacts yet. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, we're, of course, in a free enterprise system. I, and, and you and I, I think, are not old enough to remember this. Thank from, you for first, saying that about me. <laughs> we're, we're children <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, for me as a, as a journalist, I, in, in these cases with the oil price, um, I felt that in some ways we all today in Texas are beneficiaries of actual you know, planning on the part of the government right. in the 80s. So you think things like the fact that most of our oil tax receipts flow into rainy day and now right. into the highway fund rather than into general right. revenue. Right. Um, the fact that we have a spending cap, so when there is a flush estimate, we don't right. spend all the money. Right. Um, do you think that's... No, I'm, I'm very glad, personally, politically, all as a legislator, prior legislator, as a controller, as a citizen of the state of Texas, that we have a spending cap mm -hmm. because I think that that has helped us manage in the better times when we do have those downturns and taxes is interesting. I was thinking about it as I was driving over here this morning, but back in the 1980s, we put into place the legislature a rainy day fund or economic stabilization mm -hmm. fund. And it's just ironic that in the 80s we had the down slump and what did we fund that with was oil and gas severance taxes. Mm -hmm. There was no money going into it. Yeah. And, and I would love to be a fly on the wall back then because I doubt that anyone truly believed it would have a whole lot of money into it. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the last 10 years with it, having a deposit of over 16 billion, mm -hmm. that's really phenomenal. Yeah. And so kind of what I'm getting at is having that fund and having a nice reserve on the balance sheet, plus as money in the state treasury and those spending caps helping on the treasury side really helps you make it through the rough years. Mm -hmm. And personally in a year like this, I, I feel much more comforted knowing that, that there is still money in rainy day and right. fund going into 17. And, and that was one of the things during the legislative session, whether it was in our Wednesday breakfasts with leadership or as I was on the House or Senate floor as a former member, I'd go over and just talk with members, see what's going on and talk about our agency, what, you know, if they wanted to talk about the revenue estimate. And, and one of the things that people would ever ask me, well, do you think we should spend money on this or that? And I'd always kind of smile and say, you know, the great thing is I'm not a policymaker anymore. Uh, that's yeah. your decision. But what I would advise is if we could leave money in the bank, yeah. just because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And it's nice to have that cushion for those, those down years. Mm -hmm. So let's look at the change from the BRE to the CRE. CRE mm -hmm. came out on Wednesday, as the controller mentioned, right. um, a certification revenue estimate. And so the general revenue related funds that you projected dropped from 113 billion to 110 billion. Yeah. As you say, the, it didn't affect the spending side because the budget the ledge passed in the end included 106 billion. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, it's still a sign that things still, are. Still, I mean, yeah. it, $2.6 billion mm -hmm. is a significant amount of money. A 2.3% adjustment is a significant amount of dollars. But uh, you know, the fact is, is really the main part of that, yes, an adjustment in oil prices has mm -hmm. an impact. But since the vast majority of those dollars go into the Economic Stabilization Fund and Fund 6, the vast majority of that was a, a readjustment to say, yes, Texas is going to continue to grow, but even a little bit more modestly mm -hmm. than, than the moderate growth that I said back in January. And so the tick back in sales tax is, is the bulk of that. And then, too, you also take into account the legislature cut uh, fees for mm -hmm. professionals last session. So that was $250 million. So there's a bunch of different pieces that go into that. But mm -hmm. mostly it was ticking back the growth rate 
that we're going to see in Texas a little bit more than what I had in January. And so as you say, I think in your statement that you put out with it, um, you had said that sort of a main cause of the 2.6 billion revision mm -hmm. was weakness in the oil and gas industry, Correct. Correct. but the actual share of the 2.6 billion that was direct oil and gas taxes in general revenue was, was pretty small. It it, it, it's smaller than in comparison to sales tax. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the things that uh, sometimes we, we forget to explain adequately or, or appreciate is that as a state that is very dependent on sales tax, this is one of the points that I made when I gave the, the biannual revenue estimate day four session, I had two charts to my left. And those two charts, one of them was on the volatility of oil prices, mm -hmm. and one of them was the volatility of sales taxes. Mm -hmm. and, and my point being was, oil and gas industry is also interconnected with sales tax. Mm -hmm. And so that, that contraction in the oil and gas industry also has an impact mm -hmm. in the sales tax side. Mm -hmm. And that's really a, the main adjustment, plus how it interplays with other portions of the economy. Mm -hmm. And as you say, it's not always a very, it's not always entirely predictable. So at the outset right. of the year, the low prices spurred in some way sales tax increases because of spending. So. And, and we've seen, as, if you, as you look around, uh, Texas is not immune to the national issues, or the international issues. I mean, this is a very international world that we live in today. And, and we've seen in the national level how the national economy has not quite been to the level of what a lot of people predicted. Mm -hmm. And then you also look overseas and you see the, the concerns with where is the Chinese economy going, where are some other economies going, what's going to happen in the Middle East with the Iranian nuclear deal, is that going to add more oil onto the, mm -hmm. onto the market? So taking into account all those interfaces is my point. They, they have an impact on this economy. So you've got to consider all those factors and then how they affect each other and then just give an estimate for two yeah. years from now. Yeah, it, 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 I always tell people it, it's interesting because economics are, especially with the revenue estimate, is an enormous amount of assumptions that go in <laughs> to give you one assumption that comes out. All right. And if you get it wrong, then we're all going to be furious oh, yeah, at you. Yeah. Yeah. I'd have, I'm, I'm thick-skinned. Yeah, that seems like an asset in this job. Um, the sales tax is about 60% of tax collections in Texas? Yes, that's correct. It, it, it's interesting that if you look at the CRE and, and the numbers, kind of like the field guide, you know, we, mm -hmm. we put out information about what are the state taxes and try to be more, more interfacing with social media and the internet. And so if you look at the last couple of years, sales tax was about 54%, mm -hmm. but that ticks up to over 60% now. Mm -hmm. One, because of reduction in oil and gas revenues. Number two, a reduction in franchise taxes that are coming in with a 25% mm -hmm. tax cut that the legislature gave this last session. And so actually in the upcoming, this two-year budget, sales tax is even a bigger portion of that CRE than what it used to be in the past. Okay. Um, and another, I think, quirk of our state that people don't often realize is that we're one of the few states with no statewide income tax. Mm -hmm. So we're very, our sales tax base is the base that, right. Um, right. and we were saying the other day that it's, it's less volatile than income tax receipts can be because of capital gains aspects. Yeah, it was very interesting. Uh, there's one, uh, my revenue estimator was at a revenue esti estimating convention. I didn't know they had such things, uh, but I do now. I'm glad he went and I didn't get, and I'm really glad the trip put us on early in the morning because if it was late, y'all would have all been asleep by now, talking about economics and numbers and taxes. I know most of you are asleep already because uh, it's kind of, you know what, I like it, but it's good for insomnia as well. <laughs> but, uh, but the fact is, it was really interesting to me, and I never really appreciated this, about the volatility of some of the states that have that. I don't even remember. What word did you say? A state what? A what? Uh, he, well, I think no, no, no. What, that, that word that starts with an I. A what tax? 
Yeah, I can't say that word. Oh, uh, sorry. I'm sorry. It's a joke. It it's a you. joke. Yeah, that's my point. You say it for Clerk me. Donna, you can say it. I'm not going to say it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the fact is, the volatility in some other states because of capital yeah. gains taxes. Yeah. It, it's really, it's really interesting that that the difficulty that they have mm -hmm. because of those capital gains really marking out from a revenue perspective. Uh, since you mentioned Representative Howard, who's in the audience, I, I'll add that I think to date, Representative Howard, you are the only Democrat I've ever heard say that if the state needs an income tax, we should consider that. In That's the why I said, Donna, like you'll a, say it A courageous me. woman. <laughs> and you know, I don't disagree. If the state needs it, we should talk about it. I'm not afraid to talk about it. I, it's okay, I'm not in office. Um, I, I also think, you know, it's, I, I had this, uh, so I mentioned this yesterday online, and I, I've always thought that the fact that we're so sales tax driven is partly why we haven't seen some of the immigration backlash other states have seen because everyone pays into the system in Texas, right? Everyone pays sales tax. Um, and of course, there's no services to, to exploit if that's the argument you're looking at. So um, the question I think had been asked of you in the campaign, if you would update the controller's study of unauthorized immigration in Texas and the net impact? Yeah, dur during the campaign, and I've said uh, during the legislative session, it was asked of me, and the legislature was looking at that very issue. Mm -hmm. uh, different, I think, Representative Blanco, we saw him earlier, Caesar, he had had some legislation to ask us to do that, and some other legislators did as well. But they came at it from very different angles, mm -hmm. and, and the different angles were, what is it as an impact to the state? Mm -hmm. And then others, what is it an impact to local communities? Mm -hmm. And then some are looking at what is the impact to the overall impact of Texas if you combined all local entities. And during the campaign, I'd said that I thought it would be important to update that study. And so during the legislative session, I wanted to wait and see where the legislature, where they right. landed, if, if they gave us a requirement to do a study instead of starting. But, but I'll say that right now, it's not something that I plan to start in the next couple of days or next week. They gave me enough to do, mm -hmm. and so I'm kind of focused on uh, a task force for uh, gold bullion depository. I'm looking <laughs> at all kinds of other studies. We've got Senate Bill 20 that passed last session dealing with contracting, and mm -hmm. so we're very involved in the implementation of that legislation. And so right now, I don't have plans in the immediate future to update that study mm -hmm. just because we have enough things on our plate right now. Okay, so if they give you a, a request. But I mean, it may be something that we do later. Sure. I just, I have enough right now that I'd really rather not distract my staff on that issue, which I think the real question is, do you need to look at it from the overall. And mm -hmm. my point being is, where is the bird typically? It's much more so on the level mm -hmm. than the state level. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's where the impact is because where are the receipts coming in for the local government? Right. They're really not necessarily at the same level there. But anyway, that's just a personal opinion. That's mm -hmm. not a data mm -hmm. that I have to be able to put out a publication. And so I'd rather kind of wait for the commentary when we get to that. All right. And so uh, let's talk about some of the other things you are doing in the interim at the Gold Bullion Depository. Mm -hmm. um, have you, where is it going to be hosted? I mean, I'm happy to host it at my house. Okay. Like, All right. Well, actually, you know, you could store a lot of gold at your house. We just can't yeah. tell anybody because we want to make sure that it's safe and secure. So oh. now that we've told everybody it would be there, it's mm. not going to be safe and secure. <laughs> so that, that eliminates one element that we're oh, okay. creating in the gold bullion depository. But we, we put out a request for RFPs here recently, and we got those. I think the request was to be in the beginning of this month. Okay. And so here in the next couple weeks, I'm going to sit down with my staff because I created an internal task force. Mm -hmm. So the head of my treasury operations, Tom Smelker, is the head of that. And it's interesting, wherever I'm at, the number of questions I get on a wide variety of issues, I get as much or more questions on the gold bullion depository as anything else. It's, it's, it's really been surprising how much interest that has yeah. peaked. And so we're, we're trying to work through and come up with would be what would it look like 
uh, far as is it one facility, multiple facilities, are there other aspects, is it purely storage, is it other mm -hmm. types of ways that you can, you can utilize that, that type of a depository, and then really come up with business models. Mm -hmm. and, um, and what I asked my staff early on, I said I'd really need three or four business models, and then let's talk with the legislature and leadership about if and what really makes sense. Are the questions suspicious or are they excited? Uh, as far as who now? Uh, when, when you're getting questions from Oh, no, them. actually, I mean, people are very inquisitive about it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I went and spoke to a wildlife association in Brenham, Texas, and we had two, three hundred people there, and I knew I'd talk about wildlife issues, and I think six out of eight questions had to do about the gold bullion depository. <laughs> I was not prepared for that in Washington County. Uh, that was not what I expected that day. So it's it's actually just really intrigue <laughs> and, and interest, and, and really what I've been surprised is is how many people actually purchase precious metals. I've, I've really been surprised, much more than I would have thought. So this is a thing that a, a Texan, not just the government, but a Texan could go put his or her right, gold that's in right, the gold. That's right, yeah, it, it's viewed as something that not only could the state utilize if we had gold, which the state doesn't mm. have, the state treasury, i.e. the controller's office, doesn't have physical, tangible gold, but UTEMCO, the mm -hmm. investment wing of A&M and university systems, I always have to make A&M first and then UT second when <laughs> I say that. And then other, other quasi-governmental entities may have gold holdings. Now, whether they want to move them is a whole other question, but it would be for anybody and everybody, and it wouldn't even have to be a Texan. It could be anybody that wants to store it there. All right. Well, yeah. um, and then another priority you've been working on in the interim, or actually since the beginning, I guess, is this unclaimed property, mm -hmm. which I uh, claimed $190 from. Did you really? Thank you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. In my, I'm doing a town hall tour around the state of Texas right now, and, and one of the things that I mentioned towards the back end is, is how much unclaimed property there is in, in a particular community. Mm -hmm. Let's say, for example, yesterday I was in uh, Lubbock, Texas, and in Lubbock and Amarillo on Thursday, and I would mentioned to them that just, if I remember correctly, in Lubbock, Texas alone, there was $18 million of unclaimed property in Lubbock itself. 18 million or? 18 million. 18 million in the town, 19 million in the county. And if you look across the state of Texas, say, well, what is unclaimed property? It could be maybe you had a bank account and you thought you closed it and you had all the money out, but you didn't. You had maybe a little bit amount of money, or it could be a royalty proceeds, could be an insurance proceeds. Somebody the other day had mentioned uh, after I gave a speech up in Lubbock, and, she, and I saw her later, and she said, well, I looked it up. And there was an insurance proceeds that I had. We moved, and they just kept it because they didn't know where to send it to. Mm -hmm. And uh, it could be something as simple as you're the heir to a will and you didn't know about it. Mm -hmm. uh, so a whole variety of types of things. And in Texas, there are $4 billion worth of unclaimed property that is somebody in this state owns, and my office is holding that until we can find them or you find us. And so. I enjoy talking about that program because mm -hmm. it's amazing. Everywhere I give a town hall meeting, there's somebody in the room. I mean, the other day in Colleen, Texas, there was a young student. We were at the college where I was giving the speech, and out, out in the middle of the speech, she just blurted out, I found it, I found it. And I thought, <laughs> what did you find? And I, find, I stopped and I said, I'm sorry, you found what? And she's like, I got $100, it's right here. And I said, well, if you would have told me, I'd have brought it and you could have bought me lunch today. Uh, come on. So you know, the other day in Beaumont, the mayor, she had said, oh yeah, I went on, I found 800 bucks. The county judge in Rockwall County, when I was talking, he was sitting up on the front row and he goes, yeah, 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 earlier this year I had two items, $1,000. I mean, it's just amazing. And yeah. so I always tell people, claimattexas.org, claimattexas.org. And it's really fun because with modern technology, 
people have these little things while you're sitting there and they look it up and then they find their name. And within yeah. 30, 45 days typically, you can get your money back. Just fill out a form, send in some type of identification. Uh, one lady asked me the other day, she was like, why do y'all make it so hard? And I said, well, the only people we make it hard on typically is heirs. And the reason, I know you would be so surprised, but sometimes family members argue. <laughs> and so we don't want to get in a legal dispute between family members. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes that takes a little bit longer because we need to let those issues be resolved and make sure we send it to the right people is my point. Right. right. But it's a fun program. I mean, that's an exciting one that's fun to, fun to talk about. If anybody claims any property during this panel, let us know by the end. <laughs> um, fun. And then um, you mentioned this town hall tour, and so you've been on, you've got a couple more dates left, but you've been going around the state. You try a month left. Oh, a month left, yeah, really? Yeah. Okay, wow. Um, so how many cities are you hitting altogether? A little over 30, 30 cities around the state. Just trying to hit each, mainly hit each economic region of the state. Mm -hmm. One of the things coming into office that I thought was really important is looking at the state of Texas. It's great to look at 254 counties, especially with the CRE or the BRE, but it's also important to look at the different economic regions. And so whenever we get monthly sales tax data, my staff already knows to go ahead and send me the information of the communities as well. Because mm -hmm. you're really interested in looking at the different regions of the state. How are different regions performing in, in these economic times? And, and if something happens, does it tick up or tick down? And so as I'm traveling around the state, somebody had asked me, said, so are you going to be able to hit every single county in the state? And I just smiled and I said, no. And then when I was in the car driving to the next location, I got to thinking about it. I said, wait, let me think about that. If I hit a county a day for the, during, the main, during the week, five days a week, it'd take me 51 weeks. Mm -hmm. That's impossible. <laughs> so what we decided to do is get around the state, hit the economic regions, and just get a feel of what's going on. It helps me to get out and talk about some of the issues we do, unclaimed property, others that, that let people know that their money's there, but also to understand what's going on locally in those communities that I wouldn't have known otherwise. What are some things you've learned? Well, one of the things I learned is, I mean, I just, I knew how much value of dollars are going along the Texas coast as far as capital assets projects, which I kind of mentioned earlier, because mm -hmm. I used to represent a third of the coast in the Texas Senate. So I, I, I've seen what's going back in investment in, in the Texas coast as far as manufacturing and refinery capacity. But in Beaumont the other day, I mean, I was just shocked when the county judge told me how many multi-billions of dollars of projects that are unannounced. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just phenomenal. And really the mood overall is that people really are excited about being in Texas. Mm -hmm. Now, if, if you're in uh, the Permian Basin, the Eagleford, if you're in West Houston, there's a lot of nervousness with the oil and gas industry. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the other sectors are, are um, overall optimistic. You know, maybe may cautious, but optimistic. And so it, it, it's really a calm feel, I guess, is what it amounts to, which is interesting to me. I think actually there, there's Especially with all the presidential campaigns going on and all that discussion, everybody's just calm. It's kind of, it's kind of nice. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I, mean, there's, I think I've seen polling data that shows if you ask Texans how they feel about the direction of the country, they're more pessimistic than if you ask them about the state's directory. Right. And that's been right. true for years and it's still true, although we still see a sort of Trump effect in Texas where people are apparently more worried. But we have a lot of issues we needed to contend mm -hmm. with, you know, transportation, and we need to make sure we tend to post-employment benefits on the balance sheet. We need to make sure that we tend to deferred maintenance in our buildings. And so there's some issues that state needs, the state needs to still tend to from a balance sheet perspective. Let's come to that in one second, just as a quick question before. These 30 regions, are they, are they, is that a division that you inherited? Are they based on the metro areas? Yeah, they're, they're really break up if you look into economic regions. And, and if I remember, I think there's a dozen of them offhand uh, around the state. So let's say, for example, the Texas 
Gulf Coast, you can go to East Texas, Southeast Texas, mm -hmm. Northeast Texas, the High Plains, which is the Panhandle, is, is one economic region, obviously Central Texas, the San Antonio area, or the Alamo region as we call it, and really just how you look at how you break the, and some of the times it's, it's really unfair, does this county really fit in this economic region or that one, right. well, around the peripheral, but if you, if you break them up, I mean one of the things, I'll, I'll make a point, I made this comment in uh, the High Plains this week when I was there. If you look at the personal income wealth of the High Plains in and of itself, that, that community in the Panhandle, I mean, if I recall off the top, it was $35 billion worth of personal income value. The personal income that people receive in a given year, that's more than the whole state of Vermont or the whole state of Wyoming. Wow. And same as in East Texas, if you go to Northeast Texas, it was in the high 30s. I think it was $39 billion. And, and what I'm getting at is this, is sometimes we lose sight in Texas that the metropolitan regions are the only ones that provided this economy. Mm -hmm. Those areas have a bigger personal income wealth than many other smaller states in our nation. Right. <laughs> and, and sometimes we lose sight of that, is my point, that this whole 254 counties are the ones that make this state what it is. Mm -hmm. So we all count. And do you find that the regions are, are they, uh, Interdependent. If there's you know, nervousness in Houston or in Permian Basin, um, are they having much worse outcomes than counties that are doing well, like yeah, Austin? West, West Houston and Permian Basin are real interconnected. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very, well, yeah, of course, very interconnected. But but it's also interesting to see if you look at, uh, say, for example, out of the ten fastest growing counties in the nation, five of them are in Texas. Mm -hmm. Number one is right here where we're sitting in Travis County, and also the fact if you look at the Central Texas area, as well as the Metroplex area, the economies are stronger than some other areas mm -hmm. because it's, it's more diverse and it's not dependent on oil and gas in any shape, form, or fashion. Right. So, so there is obviously interconnectivity, but there are also different regions have their own strengths and weaknesses. Okay. Um, and then we've got about five minutes till Q&A, so you guys can start <coughs> thinking about your questions. And when we have Q&A, we'll go to the mics. Um, but then let's look to the, the future. I mean, you talked about some of the priorities that you mentioned just now, transportation, infrastructure, uh, pensions, you had written a letter to the big three statewide leaders mm -hmm. uh, in May, mm -hmm. talking about some of those issues and how they affect not just the state's continued resilience and health, but right. our credit rating and so on. Right. Um, so, and I think that that was received, I don't know if it was intended that way, but it was received as a sort of comment on the, the largest tax plans. Um, and you were saying there's plenty of priorities we need to tackle. Um, so. Yeah, really the backdrop on that is I was, I was in um, one of our, I was out of, out of the, here, it was during some of the days when session was over and I was in between some meetings in, in um, Houston or Dallas and I was reading over our credit rating reports, our mm. past credit rating reports. And yeah, they're, yeah, you're talking about insomnia, uh, wow. <laughs> but the fact is it kind of made me, all of a sudden it hit me, I went, wait, I've been sitting here in the legislature for all these years, they work on a two-year budget, and through all the chatter that comes for you in appropriations and finance, no one really gives a one list that says, here are the real main issues that we need to focus on for the long-term balance sheet. Mm -hmm. Well, who has the balance sheet? The controller does. Mm -hmm. So it only made sense to me, and, and not to try to get into their business, but just to make a point, here are some of the main issues. And if, if you know, as we're looking through, you're putting the final touches on the budget. And really, I wish I would have done that before a legislative session. It's just purely guidance. Here's some information that you may want to know from transportation, deferred maintenance. Uh, the, you had the Texas Tomorrow Fund, mm -hmm. which is in my office, and we were six, $594 million upside down mm -hmm. because of the fact that the fund is closed now. But 
and, and we're going to pay those, those bills. But as you look through that list, I wanted to give it to the legislature, and, and I think it was, it was um, incorrectly received as this was a comment on you know, one particular issue they were discussing, tax cuts or anything else. It was really meant as a, a mechanism to kind of be helpful to put some parameters. And one of those is because as they were talking about adding some money into the pension system for ERS, well, the House has a plan, the Senate has a plan, and the question at the end of the day, do they even get a plan? Right. And I wanted to make the point that regardless of your differences, having a plan that I can then go talk to the credit rating agencies about that maybe we didn't solve it long term, but we took a step forward. Right. When other states can't even take a step, we took a step. Mm -hmm. And that's huge. And you know, I'm not saying that the letter helped get that done, but it surely can't help. And, and so obviously I called a lot of the legislative leadership and just said, hey, I'm sending this letter. It's not a comment. I'm just, as a FYI, I think it be, can help be a guide. And, and if it's not helpful, then I won't do it again. But that was really the backdrop of it. Did it seem helpful in the end? I was, I was, I was a little nervous uh -huh. how it be, would be received as a former legislator, but it was actually well received. Mm -hmm. And again, it's factually based. Mm -hmm. I'm not picking a side. I'm not picking an opinion. Mm -hmm. They're the decision makers. I'm just providing to provide information and data upon which they can make decisions. It, yeah, it is factually based. I remember two years ago at TripFest, I had a panel that had Senator Williams, Tommy Williams, former Senate Finance Chair. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was 13, and he had just finished being Senate Finance Chair. And uh, he had it in his pocket, like inside his jacket, um, the, a printout of our credit rating as a state had just been upgraded. And they said, because the ledge took a step to invest in transportation. Right. Is, so right. I was very proud of that. Yeah, and we, we included that when I had, and I say had, to go to New York because I didn't want to go to New York. <laughs> I like to be in Texas. Right. <laughs> we talked to the credit rating agencies. We put, we put that in our packet. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it helped lead the discussion mm -hmm. that you know Texas and the legislature is taking steps on some of the major issues that we have looking at us. And it was well received because you look at some of the other states. Yeah, do we have some pension issues? Yes, but are they compared to other states? No, and even though ours are nowhere near the other states, they took a step, right. and that's huge. I mean, that's really, really enormous. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it helps us maintain that positive credit rating that Texas has had for, for quite a few years now. Which has, of course, consequent, impact it, on consequences. It, yeah, some, somebody had asked, I remember during the legislative process, and they said, Glenn, does it really matter if our credit rating drops? Who, who asked you that? I won't say that. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> and, and I almost just dropped my mouth, and I go, well, and uh, the, the governor was around me, and the governor later, he goes, did they really just ask that question? <laughs> and I said, yeah, and it really does matter. Yeah. And it really, really matters. Um, it, would, it would be a, it would be, um, it would not look good to the state to have, a, have our credit rating drop. And, uh, and that was another reason that this last, um, this year, I decided not to issue a TRAN. Mm -hmm. And that's the first time we haven't issued one in 30 years. And the, the bond market just said, wow, you're doing what? Oil yeah. prices are going down, but we have enough dollars in our treasury that we can cash flow with what we have right. here in the next few months, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, and it's great that we're in that position. Um, so let's talk about our position going forward. Um, as you mentioned, the certification of an estimate reflects some changes that are because Correct. of what the ledge did, yeah. the yeah. cuts to fees, um, the franchise tax reduction of 20%. Um, going forward, we know there's a couple areas that we can expect 
spending demands to increase. So the school finance ruling is still pending. Is, is, it should be coming up before the next legislative session. We should see school finance come before the next legislative session. Another thing that I mentioned in there is, is we're talking about our, our federal match right now mm -hmm. for our Medicaid and in those numbers we may have a little bit more expenses than, than was anticipated in the budget. So I wanted to mention that even though we don't have those numbers yet from HHSC. Mm -hmm. And that's the spending side, but still it's an important number to put in there. And then there's a couple of tax cases. There's uh, the Southwest royalties, which the controller's office has not lost yet, either at the trial court or on appellate court, but that's a major one that's out there. And then uh, you also have what's called the AMC case, mm -hmm. which is a significant case. And I kind of laughed the other day. I'd, I read over these tax cases when they get filed. And again, that's not for insomnia, just because I kind of like to see, <laughs> see what's being filed against us. And uh, one of the firms, that said, oh no, the AMC case is very broad, very narrow. It's not very broad. Well, they use that as one of their arguments mm -hmm. in the case. And I sent it to several of my staffers and uh -oh. I was like, oh, narrow argument, really? <laughs> uh, we're already trying to creep this out. But that could have a big impact. On franchise now, tax. A significant impact on the franchise tax. But I doubt that that will be uh, settled before the next legislative session is probably going further on. Okay. So, but I'm optimistic that, that at the end we'll win that case. Okay, and then we also have in November, uh, Prop 1 on the ballot mm -hmm. is about the Correct. property tax relief. It would raise the homestead exemption. Yes. The cost of the state would be about 1.2 billion every two years. Yeah, it's uh, it's actually a little bit higher. Yeah. And so now we're, we're looking at, instead of about 620 and 640 million for each of the next two years, it's, it's probably up a little bit more like 700 million. Okay. And then part of that is, is, is even my office as we work through the data you know, it's a lot of data to run those models. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of data. And so therefore, when we re-ran those models to be extremely detailed, it's probably a little bit higher, but it, but it's it's not significant in comparison to the overall budget. Mm -hmm. um, but so we add up those things, I mean, that's from the schools, Medicaid, property tax, I mean, we end up with six, seven, eight, perhaps, mm -hmm. billion more. Um, and then some potential for lower tax collections. Um, our revenue base continues to grow. I mean, the Travis County is growing, population is right. growing, so there's just not as fast. Just and not as fast, part, and that's part right. of the certified revenue estimate. Not right. As fast. But but right now, if as I look forward, at least with the CRE, mm -hmm. and 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 as we go forward, I'm not required to give another revenue update. The next revenue update is the biennial revenue estimate before 2017. But what I've said is if. If things significantly change, mm -hmm. then then I'm going to talk about it and I'm going to mention those numbers. So I may not be required to give an estimate. I don't think there should be a day certain that I have to because maybe nothing has changed by then. But if something seems to be changing, because I've been in the legislature when you, you walk in the door and the numbers significantly change on you. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think that's a disservice to the legislature. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, um, we need to be a little more little more helpful in, in as we see numbers change. And, and it's uh, obviously very complicated as, as uh, we say, but the fact is if it changes, then we're gonna tell people. Mm -hmm. um, and so do you think looking at 17, I know you're not in the ledge anymore, and so this isn't up to you, or it's not your, not your problem anymore, but um, you know, Governor Patrick last night talked about looking further at franchise tax reductions, further at property tax relief. Um, my sense just, uh, of course, it's a couple of years away, would be that I don't think we're gonna be in the position fiscally to do that, um, but do you have a different sense? Do you think we'll have? No, you know, the good thing about my position, um, I don't worry about the spending side. Yeah. I, I do, I take, I take mm -hmm. that back. I mean, it's just, it's not, it's not what our function is. Mm -hmm. but, but as we look, I think we'll have a much better um, evaluation of that when we get to this time next year. Mm -hmm. and, and the reason is by then, or maybe even the summer of next year, that'll be a much closer glimpse of what does the economy look like 
Has oil and gas deteriorated significantly more? Has the prices gone to the 20s? Have they stayed where they're at? Have they gone up? Is there some international crisis? What's happened in the national economy? What's happened in the European economy, the Asian economies? And I think we'll have a better, a better glimpse then. But I do think that the budget, as far as the volume of the dollars that the legislature has to deal with, it'll be tighter than what it was this session, if that's, if that's what you're asking. So we had a significant surplus that was still held over, and I don't see us having quite that type of a surplus next session. Well, fortunately, we have Friday Day and Highway Fund yes. and Spending Cap that kept some of that in there. Um, we'll take some questions now if people have questions, if anyone wants to go that's to That's if anybody's still awake. Yes, yeah. sir. Yay! All right, there you go. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> See? It's easy, right? See? Claimittexas.org. What did I tell you? Now, now, now I have to change my certified revenue estimate because oh. you've taken 95 bucks out. Oh, my goodness. All right. We'll have a revision next week. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I understand. All right. Oh. Uh, Controller, my name is James Labai. I do a little fiscal practice around town. Thank you for coming today, by the way. Uh, I've got a question about, uh, pertains to higher education. What, in your opinion, does Texas A&M need to do to win today over Alabama? Yeah. Can you tell I'm going to the game today? Uh, I'm meeting the wife and the kids there here shortly. So if y'all see me run out real fast, it's not because I don't want to talk to y'all. It's like, I got a game to go to. So, uh, yeah, we need to, we need to have a good defense and score some points. So Aggies by four. That's my prediction. Hopefully, uh, hopefully that's real close. We'll that's see. Good. Other questions, comments? Stuart. Stuart. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm really trying to look at where we at through this biennium and where we're going to be at at the beginning of the next biennium. And I think as we look at the school finance litigation and have some guidance on that coming up very soon, that'll kind of give a little bit of guidance to the legislature on where they need to go. But I, I'll, I'll make uh, this comment is that we can kind of look to the future and say, well, where are we going to go? But we could also have done the same thing two years, four years, 10 years, 20 years ago. And so kind of my point being is, you know, every society always struggles with how do we pay for roads? How do we make sure we have a quality workforce? How do we make sure that we have that educated workforce for the needs that we have in the future? And I think that's something that every, every society has always struggled with, is kind of my point. And, you know, here in Texas, I've got a lot of faith that it's going to work out. I still firmly believe, and I'm not trying to avoid your question, Stuart. It's just I think that that's a complexity that is something that we're always challenged with. And, and I'll just, you know, not, not to avoid it, but just to answer it like this, and it's just a simple catchphrase, but, but it's truly how I feel. I mean, the fact is, is I'm just glad I get to call Texas home. I'd rather, I'd rather weather the storm here 
than somewhere else. Can I do a follow-up? Yeah, of course you can. You have a very intelligent, well-qualified staff. <laughs> Would you give some thought of possibly allowing them to address those issues and provide some guidance? Uh, it, dep it, depend it depends on what, uh, what yeah, we do have a good quality staff. I mean, that's, that's one thing that I've, I appreciated that as a legislator, but I appreciate it much more so now. I mean, we've got a lot of good people that are giving service to this state and have been long-term employees. Uh, the fact is, it kind of depends on whatever guidance. We're here as a resource for the legislature, you know, and ask things that they want. We'll try to, we'll try to give them as much information as they want, and regardless of who asks. Doesn't matter how Senate, RD, rural, suburban, urban, we're, we're happy to be of assistance. <laughs> sure, what's the, what's the sort of background of that question? I mean, you worked in the controller's office, but do you mean, would he let them, uh, are they currently not, not authorized to give guidance? I mean, if, if they want to give me appropriating authority, I'm happy to do their budget for them. <laughs> I'd be happy for that to happen too, I think. <laughs> but I don't think they're going to do that. And I'm not sure my people want that either. <laughs> I'll ask you one more if I don't see any other. I'm sorry, ma'am? Yes, ma'am. My name is Dan Now that the CRA is completed, what is the timeline for outstanding certifications that corporations that have been uh, approved in the budget process but are still awaiting certification before they can be Yeah, far, far as the sum that my office right. certifies. Right. And one of the things that, that we are working through all of those right now, there's, there's several that are in the budget. Uh, say, for example, there's several that are university-run, uh, let's see, there's the kind of the workforce centers, and then you also have the film industry, and there's a few others. And so we're working through that process to very likely approve those expenditures. But I have told the legislature this last session, and I will say next time, that those types of expenditures are going to count against the revenue estimate because a lot of times these things have been put in and they've just said, well, the controller always certifies. And here's the point, if you have something that's been in the budget for 20 years, I think the impact of its existence probably got absorbed in the first couple of years. You can't actually say that it's gonna to continue to generate more revenue for the state of Texas every single time. So one of the new ones was the film industry. I think the, um, the, the film commission, I think if I remember correctly, or the art, arts commission, Got, got that type of appropriation, about $5 million. Now, what, what I am not interested in doing is continuing to use that process every single two-year cycle. It needs to, you get it once, if it has an impact to the state of Texas and will bring more revenues into the state to make up the difference for that expenditure, which is what the theory is behind this. Yet, the next time, it has to be in the budget because it might be generating revenue and economic activity now, but we don't always, I'm, I don't see that as continuing every single cycle, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's, that's a newbie that happens to be the one that got my eye on. Thank you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. And do we have any, any last questions, sir? Yes, sir. I'm going to leave that up to Governor Abbott. I mean, the fact is, is, you know, the, the governor, Governor Abbott has a, Rechange some of the issues, you know, say for example, the Emerging Tech Fund, we wound that down. I now have the investments of the Emerging Tech Fund and we're going through and, and we're evaluating every single fund and when we would um, 
sell those, get rid of those, those stocks or bonds, and so therefore those stocks, and then that money will move over. And so my point being is the governor, current governor, has had a little bit different approach. And so, you know, it's really up to the governor and the legislature on whether they have money and what he tries to do with those dollars. I mean, we're, we're out of it, is what it amounts to. But, but what I will say is this, is one of the things that, that I try in my office from a facts-based standpoint through our social media efforts and our communication efforts is to continue to make the point that if you look at Texas for 104 months in a row, our unemployment has been lower than the national average. 11 years in a row, the top CEOs have ranked Texas as the number one place to do business. We have a metrics on our, on our website of the 50 state comparison. We just sent out a tweet the other day about it. And, and one is the cost of living, we're ranked number one. But if you talk about some other factors, up oh, we're number 47. The numbers are the numbers, but if you look at the whole picture, Texas is a good place to call home and it's a good place to do business. And that's the reason that you still have 600 people moving to this state every single day based on past numbers and why they're coming here for an economic opportunity. And so I think that we need to continue to promote that Texas is a good place to do business. It's a good place to have a job and you can actually have a good quality of life. As somebody yesterday, I was on an airplane from Lubbock down and I was asking him what he was doing. He said, oh, my, my, uh, my daughter, she went to school here, but she's out in San Diego. And I said, yeah, that's great. If you want to pay more for a house, you got a beachfront, you know, but it, it's a different quality of life and there's nothing against that. But as far as the quality here, it's, it's really good in Texas. So I think we need to continue to promote Texas is, is what I'm getting at. Yes. No questions from legislators. That was in the rules. Didn't you read? Didn't you read the rule rule book? Hey, there you go. Do what? That's good. And you get to buy me breakfast next week, right? All right, good deal. I'll bring the check. Yes, yes, ma'am. The investment management of it. Um, do you have any opinion about that? Any idea? I mean, this is a this is a major fund. Uh, right now, it's managed by uh, staff at TEA, mm -hmm. and of course, the State Board of Education has authority to manage it. They don't have to. They're not required to have any fiscal uh, credit to their name at all to be elected to this. Whereas this the investment arm of, of your office. We do. We, we manage through the Texas Safekeeping Trust Company. I'm the sole shareholder of that. Uh, a lot of people don't even know that it exists. We manage endowed dollars that have been given us tobacco settlement dollars as one prime example and other dollars. Then we also manage the treasury pool, which the treasury pool is, is just, it's money that's very liquid. Uh, it's not really a whole lot of management to it from an investment standpoint is my point. A uh, much more simplistic type approach because of the, of the type of dollars it is. But the endowed dollars, the $2 billion that we as the legislature and the voters approved taken out of the rainy day fund for SWIFT, State Water Implementation Fund, which uh, water development were obviously draws down on, but we invest that $2 billion. And same as this last legislative session, and hopefully you voted for it, that I had asked for a little more flexibility from the rainy day fund where those dollars that are not necessary that y'all said in the rainy day fund, funds above that, which was seven billion is what the committee said. So funds above that, 
we can invest those to a slight amount. And so thank you very much. I, I just think it's amazing that if you look at last, last year, we had 6.4 billion sitting in the rainy day fund, or economic stabilization fund. And we earned through the treasury pool $22 million. And in, in order to cover inflation, we would have needed to make 124 million. I mean, we lost 100 million to inflation. That's crazy. Now we don't need to try to go make, you know, in, inflation plus five, you know, inflation plus eight. We're not trying to set the world on fire because the main thing is to, to keep and preserve the principle. But let's not lose money to inflation e either. And so I think that uh, the trust company folks do a really good job. We've got some really good advisory groups that, that are part of that, that come in and give us a lot of expertise and guidance and directions to go. And so I'd, I'm, I feel that the track record of the trust company has been very strong. But as far as the legislature, if they want to give us any other responsibilities, that's really up to y'all. When we talked about, as I mentioned earlier, the emerging tech fund, my main concern was if we didn't have the tools to manage it, then just go sell it on the street. But y'all gave us the tools to do that. I just want to make sure whatever you give us, we have the tools to do it right. I like it's a decision. What I I'd, I'd have to look at it, to be honest with you. That's not one that I've looked at. So, but, but I'm happy to do it if that's what you want me to do. Okay, and we have one last question from Jason, and we'll have to get out of this room, so. So, uh, Mr. Hagar, you're going to the game, mm -hmm. and you have a Twitter account. I do. Can I get your commitment that you're not going to tweet during the game about the outcome? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I never do because uh, I want to make sure that that board has zero, zero, zero time left, yes. and then I might tweet about it. Yes, sir. Um, no, no, no jinxing, yes. I wonder which game you're talking about. Never mind, don't repeat, don't say it, don't see it, don't get me in trouble. <laughs> okay, please uh, join me in thanking the controller, Glenn Hagar. Thanks, Erica.